Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I'm joined by China analyst and author Mark O'Neill to talk about two nuns or Columban sisters who were fully trained doctors and who made it their mission to reverse the number of cases of tuberculosis in the city. In the 1950s, tuberculosis was still both a major and deadly disease, and at least 2,000 people would die from it each year of that decade. Many refugees and the territory's poor were vulnerable to this contagious disease, where treatments were only just being discovered. Mark O'Neill tells me about the work of Sister Mary Aquinas and Sister Mary Gabriel O'Mahony. Well, today we're speaking about two very important Columban sisters, both doctors who devoted their professional lives to Hong Kong and the fight against tuberculosis. So let's just start by explaining who are the Columban sisters. They were founded in County Clare in 1922, and from the beginning, the focus of their work was China. So County Clare is in the west of Ireland. Yeah. Now the Columban fathers, that's the priests. Were already in China at that time, and they discovered that if you're going to work with Chinese women, you must have women to work with them. So you can't have priests looking after the health needs, educational needs, other needs of Chinese women. So in 1926, Columban sisters started to go from Ireland to China, and their main mission station was Hanyang, which is. Wuhan. Now, these two women that we're speaking about today, who are in Hong Kong, they were born in rural families in Ireland, 1919, 1921, into large families, very religious families. Now, let's just picture what Ireland was like at that time. As you know, Ireland's independence was extremely brutal. There was first of all a war with British Army. Then, when Ireland got independence, there was a civil war between the two groups within Ireland. One of whom accepted the treaty with Britain, and the other, which didn't, and said, Ireland must be completely 100% independent state with no restriction at all. So this devastated the economy and led to a large movement of population. A lot of Protestants left. And the Protestants, many of them, would be professional people, well-qualified people, people with money, and they left, especially the west of Ireland. So this left Ireland very poor and agricultural, and the population, the number of children per family was very high, and there was not enough work to support them. So many people emigrated. So these two young ladies grew up in this environment. And in their teens, they received a vocation, decided to become nuns. And 1936, the Pope lifted the ban on nuns becoming doctors or midwives. So, for the first time, it was possible for nuns in Ireland elsewhere to qualify as doctors. So that's what these two ladies decided to do. So they went to University College Dublin, and in the war years, they were studying to become doctors, and they qualified just after the war. And their plan was to go and work in Hanyang, the mission station of the Columban Sisters in Hanyang in, in Wuhan. That was the plan. But the communists won the civil war, and expelled all the foreign missionaries. So all the Columban Sisters, as well as all the other foreign missionaries, had to leave. So suddenly you have these highly qualified doctors who want to serve in China, but they can't. So one of the superiors came to Hong Kong and discovered that there was this tuberculosis hospital being built, and they needed qualified staff. So she allocated five Columban sisters to work in this hospital. 
So tell me about tuberculosis. I mean, these days, is it still a threat? Well, it's still a threat, but in the years after World War II, it was the biggest killer in Hong Kong. And I've got in front of me the figures, the deaths from tuberculosis. 1948, it was 1,961. 1949, it was 2,611. 1950, it was 3,263. And 1951 was the record high, which is 4,190. Oh, wow. So, I mean, it was, as you say, it was very prevalent and quite a killer. It's in your lungs, is it? Yeah. Well, it's a disease that has existed for hundreds of years. And in the 19th century, there were treatments, but nobody had found a way to cure it. But in the 1940s, there was research done in America, and they found this drug called streptomycin and other drugs, and it became possible to treat TB so that it was no longer lethal. But this, this didn't all happen in one day. All this happened over a series of years. So when the, the five Columban sisters arrived here in 1949 and went to work in the Ratanji Hospital, not all of this was known. The, the, the treatments were being developed. And we must also mention that the Ratanji Hospital is named after a Parsi businessman whose daughter died of TB in 1943. So the Parsi businessman was moved to donate 800,000 Hong Kong dollars to build this sanatorium, especially to fight TB. Now, this is the time when tens of thousands of people are escaping from mainland China to Hong Kong. So the living conditions of many of them are extremely bad. And the conditions are perfect for the propagation of TB because people are very overcrowded, the sanitary conditions are not good, people are not eating properly. So many of the patients of the sanatorium in those years would be people who just arrived from mainland, very poor, with limited knowledge of medical treatments. And how contagious is it? Oh, it is contagious and it's infectious. And according to the accounts I've read, to enter the hospital was, was very distressing because the patients would be very weak, they would be coughing from their lungs, you know, coughing onto the floor. They didn't understand well the, the illness that they had. So to treat them required not only medical knowledge, but also a great sense of humanity and care and seeing the patients as your fellow human and not looking down on them. And uh, as I say, the, the treatments were evolving. So the nuns used whatever medicines they had. They were also doing research to find out new medicines that were available and to get the, the patients to take the medicines. And at that time, the treatment took two years. So the patient had to follow the treatment order for two years. And this was quite difficult because, of course, people had to work. So they couldn't stay in the hospital indefinitely. So that was also a headache. You had to ensure that the patient took the drugs on the right days and continued the treatment and then came back to be observed and so on. So the two leading nuns that we're speaking about, which is uh, Sister Mary Aquinas and S Sister Gabriel Omani, they lived in the hospital and they took turns to do the night duty. So I think we've got to express our enormous admiration for those two because this means getting up at any hour of the day or night. The condition of the patients could be very bad, it could be dangerous, 
and there was nurses, there were other doctors, there were family members also in the hospital, and they would be frightened by what they were seeing. So these two doctors, they have to treat the patient, they have to speak to the junior staff, they have to speak to the families, they have to try to keep everybody calm, and this requires enormous love and care as well as professional skill. So as the 50s evolve, we can see from the figures that the number of deaths from tuberculosis gradually diminishes. But it's still, I mean, I'm just looking at your chart here and it stays over 2,000 people for a number of years. Yeah, until 1960. Uh, 1961 is the first time it drops below 2,000. So by now we have much more clearer system of treatment and regimen and what kind of drugs to take. Hong Kong is wealthier than it was in 1950. There would be more nurses and doctors trained in this field, so things become easier. So both these nuns then continue with their clinical work, but they also do a lot of research. They write for Hong Kong and foreign medical journals. They also take their learning abroad. They go and give lectures in the Philippines, in Africa, in Europe, North America. They spread their knowledge of the treatment of TB. So the treatments they devised become the international standards. And you know, t TB is a serious illness in many countries in the world. So what they learned here and what they wrote here was used by doctors all over the world. Oh, I didn't realize that they were such pioneers. So this is Sister Mary Aquinas, born in 1919. So can we hear a little bit about the background of these two nuns? Yes, Sister Mary Aquinas was one of nine children of a farming family. She grew up in County Galway, and in 1939 she entered the Columban Order and uh, studied medicine. And I think we have to say that she was a very brave woman to do this. I mean, Ireland was an extremely conservative country then. What was the role of women in Ireland in the 1930s? Well, it was to be a good wife, it was to be a good mother. Certain professions would be open to them. I imagine to be a nurse, to be a teacher, to be a civil servant. I mean, all that would be socially acceptable. But to become a doctor, it requires a very long period of study. It had been reserved for men for many centuries. And I think a lot of people would not have accepted the idea that women could become doctors. So I think both she and the other nun we're speaking about, Sister Gabriel Mahani, must have had a great determination to take up medical studies and complete them in this very conservative atmosphere. And I sort of imagined that when they went to places and people said, what are you doing? And they said, I'm starting to be a doctor. I think many people would have looked askance at them and would have said, this is not a, an appropriate job for a woman, you know. They had great determination. And then, of course, they both wanted to be doctors in China. <laughs> so this is also extraordinary because, I mean, Ireland was a poor country in Europe, but they both wanted not to work in Ireland, but to work in center of China, in, in Hanyang, where, of course, conditions were much worse, and China was going through the Second World War and then was going to go through the Civil War, so the conditions to be a doctor in China were extremely difficult. But they had this vocation, so I, I do find that extraordinary. 
yeah, when you do have a vocation, obviously, that they, these two women had to serve people like this. But also, I mean, we were describing, you know, that they had the professional skills. They also had the people skills to deal with uh, frightened families and patients in Ratanji at a time when far less was known about tuberculosis. And uh, as you say, it was contagious, so it was a frightening thing to have. And thousands died. But I think also just when you say that they had to do the night shift in Ratanji, just they must have been very physically fit or hardy to, to keep that up. Yes, perhaps this is the difference perhaps between a nun and a doctor because of course they weren't married, they were married to their vocation. So a doctor would perhaps go to his back to his house, back to his family, perhaps he played golf on the weekend. You know, he had another life outside the medical one was in their case their life and their work was the same and from the descriptions we can read they were both very affectionate warm people full of humor full of warmth they liked people a lot senior officials of the government when they were ill would go to see them as doctors so they were very easy to get along with, very warm, very approachable. So I think they had an ability to relate to everyone. And in those days, Hong Kong was still quite a racially divided city, class divided between the rich and the poor. And evidently these nuns, they didn't fill into any of these slots because they dealt with the poorest people, these refugees who'd come in from the mainland and contracted TB. And they would also deal with some senior official who had an illness that needed to be treated. So they had an ability to cross all these barriers. Now, we've heard about Sister Mary Aquinas. Who was the second nun? Well, her name was Sister Gabriel Omahani. She has a similar profile to Sister Mary Aquinas. She came from a very uh, religious family. I mean, a lot of these Irish families were large. If you suddenly said, well, I do want to get married to the church, basically, I want to be a nun, I want to be a priest, was that an acceptable thing to do in Ireland, even though these people then knew that they're not going to come become grandparents via that daughter? You had many children, so if one or two joined the church, that was extremely glorious. I remember I met one lady in Belfast. She had eight children. She said, two of my sons are priests. I said, this is a great honor for your family. She said, indeed so. She said, it means that all of the family members will go directly to paradise. She said, all of us. doesn't matter what we've done. If you have two priests, it's like straight-to-go card. <laughs> So, yes, it was very glorious to have children to go into religious orders. So one of the sons would take over the family farm, and then, yes, one of the sons would become a priest. And I recently interviewed an Irish priest in Hong Kong who became a de la Salle brother, and he was the twelfth of twelve children, twelfth of twelve so I said, why did you become a Delisar brother? And he said, look, what were my options? I was the 12th of 12. So it means I have no chance to have any land. Jobs where he was in the west of Ireland were very few. So most of the people emigrated. So they went to England or they went to North America. And they worked on building sites in Birmingham or Liverpool and Chicago or New York. They had a very tough life. Some of them never married they were socially at the bottom of the scale and he said by comparison becoming a priest was an extremely attractive option because it had a very high social status in society you were trained you were given a good education you were then given an important meaningful job 
And here he is now in his 70s in Hong Kong. He's been a teacher here since the 1960s. And he's had an extremely meaningful and useful life. So I'm not saying he didn't also have a vocation. I'm not saying that God didn't speak to him and asked him to do this. I think he did too. But I think in the, in the island of that time, to join a religious institution, male or female, was a very attractive option. Now, of course, the flip side of that is that today, the vocations are very few. So the Columban sisters and all the male and female religious orders in, in Ireland and in other countries in Western Europe find it very hard to recruit people. Now, it's a very complicated question as to why this is, and there are many, many factors. But, of course, one factor has to be that the Irish economy has, since the 1980s, taken off. Ireland's per capita GDP now is higher than that of the UK. There are many opportunities for employment, not only in Ireland, but in, in the EU, because Ireland's a, um, a member of the EU. So a young Irish person now has many options, which were not at all available in the 1920s or 30s. We've uh, talked a little bit about both sisters, but tell me a bit more about Sister Gabriel O'Mahony. In the early 1980s, the Columban sisters had a big conference to decide what their future role should be in Hong Kong. And they decided that they didn't need any more to be involved in education and medicine. Now, I'm sorry, I haven't found out exactly why they decided this, but my guess would be that the number of vacations at home had greatly fallen. They didn't have the staff that they had before. And secondly, of course, Hong Kong had greatly advanced since 1949. So Hong Kong had developed excellent hospitals, excellent medical institutions who had trained many of its own doctors and nurses. So the role of the expatriates, doctor and nurse, was not so important. So they passed this Ratanji Sanatorium to Hong Kong management. But Sister Gabriel Mahoney, she was interested in many kinds of care. So she took her attention to the care of old people. So in 1986, she set up the Society for the Promotion of Hospice Care. And 1992, she set up the Bradbury Hospice, which was the first specialized unit to care for elderly people in the last period of their life. Now, both she and Sister Aquinas were very active in research, publishing, going around the world, giving talks and lectures and spreading their knowledge. So that was a very important part of their life. Now, Sister Mary Aquinas unfortunately died young. She was only 66, and this was November 1985. She had a short illness and she died. So Sister Gabriel, she lived longer. She stayed on in Hong Kong. And when her health began to deteriorate, she decided to retire to Ireland. So the last night she was here, it was winter, and she went to Yamade, and there were street sleepers, just like there are today. And so the last night she was here, she was handing out food to these street sleepers, which I must say I find very, very remarkable story. I mean, your own health is deteriorating. The next day you're, you're going to take an aeroplane to go back to Ireland, but she was still had enough time and energy and concern to take the food to the street sleepers in Yamate. Now, the, the efforts of both these sisters who were uh, qualified doctors and, as we say, they, they spent years... Um, helping people here with tuberculosis. This was actually recognised by the British government. 
Yeah, they, they received many honors, uh, membership of learned societies and so on. And Sister Gabriel got an MBE and Sister Mary Aquinas got an OBE. And actually she went to Buckingham Palace. She went to one of these famous tea parties and the Queen gave her the OBE. Yes, so they were both were very well recognized by the British government and by the medical profession here for everything that they had done. Tell me about the Columban sisters in general, I mean, in terms of what their work has been in China. So the Columban sisters had started in China in 1936, mainly to serve Chinese women in health and education. In 1938, they opened a school in Shanghai for Russian refugees, and they agreed to use the Byzantine rite for their services, which is quite a concession if you're... Uh, Byzantine rite? Well, as you know, the Christian Church has de many different forms of worship, and the Roman Catholic Church has its form, and the Byzantine Catholic Church has another form. Oh, I didn't even know that, yeah. Uh, so, in order to adapt to these Russian refugees who are exiles from Russia, these Columbus sisters in Shanghai, they use the Byzantine rite in their worship there, which I thought was a, a fine thing to do. So, they're expelled from the mainland in 1950. Then in Hong Kong, they run the, the Rutenji Sanatorium. They also run secondary schools for new immigrants from China. And then, as I mentioned, in the 1980s, they hand over the schools and hospitals here to local management. But they continue to work here in AIDS, caring for the very old, uh, prisoners, prostitutes, and uh, children with special needs. But then, this is quite surprising, they then return to the mainland and their work in the mainland now is severely physically handicapped children and also teaching English in state universities. Now, as you know, the mainland government is quite suspicious of any foreign religious groups in China. So the sisters in China must be extremely careful in the way they behave themselves. They must stick to the tasks for which they've been given visas. And if they have contact with local Catholics, either official Catholics or Catholics who belong to the underground church, they have to be very circumspect and discreet about it. And of course their mission is to spread the gospel. That's their mission. But in the context of China today, you have to do that in a very careful way. And I've met some Irish priests who work in the mainland, and uh, I ask them what they do. And they're very polite, and they tell jokes. <laughs> 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 but they don't want to tell you, because what they're doing is, is, is sensitive. And they don't want it to be in the public domain, because that would draw attention to what they're doing. So at this stage of history, you have to work in a very discreet, modest way and not draw the attention of the authorities to you. And if that happens, you may be expelled. Now, we've been talking about the two Irish sisters uh, in terms of the Columban order, but there's um, any number now of uh, Chinese nuns who make up the Columban order. Yes. Well, this is, of course, the, the miracle of the religious orders in that while in Ireland, Western Europe, the number of vocations has gone down, in many other countries in the world it's gone up. So, of course, there would be sisters from the Philippines, 
There will be Chinese sisters, there will be Taiwan sisters, there will be Korean sisters, there will be uh, South American sisters. So the Colombians are active in Korea, Peru, Chile, Pakistan, Myanmar. So they carry on their work, they're true to their mission, but the number of Irish sisters would be much fewer than, than in the past. You've still got Colombian sisters working on the mainland? Yes. So once I met a missionary, he was a Protestant missionary. He'd worked in China for a long time, and we were discussing the situation in the mainland. He said, look, Mark, a journalist sees time in minutes, or hours, or days, or weeks, but God sees time in centuries. You know, regimes, governments, dynasties only last for a limited time. You know, they, they'll come to an end. They'll be replaced by another dynasty. So his view, not only of China, but of all countries, would be like this. So the situation we see at the moment is very unfavorable to missionary work. But in the course of time, things will change, like they have in Eastern Europe or in Soviet Russia, Soviet Union, and the matter will become more propitious in future. So I suspect if, if we had a Columban sister with us here, I think she would say the same thing. When I also think about Ireland would have had a small population and yet a massive exodus, really, of Irish going abroad due to the economic hard circumstances at home. In fact, when I think that we've... I mean, we're talking about the Columban sisters today and uh, a, few, a few weeks ago we were talking about the Jesuits also in Hong Kong made a huge difference in all sorts of areas, planting or reforesting Hong Kong after the war, education healthcare. Now, it's interesting, I think, that Ireland's influence in terms of its priests and nuns who went elsewhere. Yeah, I, I would say Ireland's greatest export to the world has been its priests and nuns. I mean, Ireland's population today is lower than it was in 1840. Can you imagine this? Is there any country in the world where the population today is lower than it was in 1840. We've mentioned already Irish families traditionally had very large numbers of children, but the events of the 1840s, you know, the famine, a million people died, a million people emigrated, the population fell catastrophically, and even today it's not reached the level of, of 1840. So immigration has been a constant feature of Irish life ever since the famine. And so while many of them would be workers, farmers, soldiers, people not so educated, I would say the best people they've, ex they've exported would be priests and nuns. And the story that we tell in Hong Kong has been repeated in many countries. So it's repeated in the mainland China, it's repeated in many countries in Africa, it's repeated in countries in, in South America, and Australia, New Zealand, many Irish people went there, and including nuns and priests, and they also worked in education and welfare in other sectors. In China, we have the two churches, you know, we have the official Catholic Church, which is under the government, and we have the underground Catholic Church, and the underground Catholic Church follows the Pope as their leader, but the official Catholic Church, their leader, it sits in Beijing, it's under the Chinese government. But I would say the, the mass, the content, would be the same in both. These are very nuanced questions, and when you meet a mainland official Catholic priest, and you ask him about the Pope, this is a very difficult question for him to answer. 
because he cannot say that for him the Pope is the supreme leader of the church above that of the Chinese government. So he can't say that. But maybe he thinks that in his heart. So they don't answer the question and they say we have good relations with all Catholics. We are all members of the same family. You know, we meet the members of the other congregations. He wants to avoid any comment which is at all sensitive or, or provocative. Oh, yes. So, as you know, the Catholic Church and Beijing have been having numerous negotiations over this issue for the last many years. They are certainly moving toward an agreement, but I don't, I don't think they've reached a final agreement. Um, so the question remains very sensitive. My thanks to China analyst and author Mark O'Neill, talking there on the work of two Columban sisters, Sister Mary Aquinas and Sister Mary Gabriel O'Mahony. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.